it's his way of saying, I made the first move that night after the fire. Like I showed you that I was interested Mm -hmm. and now I need you to reciprocate that and confirm that if we're ever going to be together. The first three words really describe how he feels about Bertha to me. Mm -hmm. Pain, shame, ire. Yeah. Hurt by what happened. He feels ashamed of the situation that he is in. Mm -hmm. And he's so angry. And Bertha's the only person he can take that out on. Lillian, hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I am also great. Right before we recorded this, I read the last chapter of this section that we're going to be talking about today because I had, I read it really fast, uh, as you know, mm-hmm. and then you were like, whoa, I haven't even started this part yet. So then I was like, okay, well, I, I need to save the last chapter of this section for right beforehand. So everything's fresh in my mind. I went back and reread everything that I had made notes on before. And so now I am all zip, zap, zoop, ready to go talking about section three of Jane Eyre, the novel. <laughs> so I'm excited. Hey. That's very exciting. I also just finished the chapter, but I, on the other hand, was the one being like, um, (laughs) paper, you read that in like two days. I need more time. (laughs) I predict this might be my favorite chunk of all of the sections. I mean, I don't know yet if the next section where we get all of like the proposal and all of the big romance stuff that might obviously steal the show, but there was so much in this that I really liked. That was very Rochester heavy, very much in Mm -hmm. Jane's mind about how she feels about him. So it was Mm -hmm. very fun to explore. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I am anticipating the next section being the section that I like the most because I found some parts of this somewhat annoying, but (laughs) I did. I also really loved the Jane Rochester long talks. Like I think this section had a lot of what we have sort of anticipated as there being more fleshed out portions in the book versus some of the adaptions that we watched where like those long conversations, you obviously can't include that. Mm-hmm. in a movie without it seeming insane mm-hmm. but it's lovely to read in a book and I just <laughs> I one of the things that I wrote down and we can we'll definitely talk about this more is there's a couple times in this where I'm like this would be so insane if you didn't know that, <laughs> like this story would seem so insane like this man seems crazy yeah if you don't know what he's talking about <laughs> Seriously, seriously. It's um, one of the early notes that I make because we open up with a section where he is telling Jane about uh, Adele's history and like why, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing her in that dress upset him so. So he's like, you know, they're walking outside and he's starting to tell her some of the secrets of his mysterious past. And he does again, kind of like we talked about uh, when he's speaking to her before the fireplace, where we predict that he's had three glasses of wine. And so therefore he's like maybe just a little buzzed and kind of rambly. But here, presumably it's a new day. I assume he's not drunk or intoxicated. So he's just pontificating. And I'm, mm-hmm. I wrote down, I'm like, this is a man with a lot on his mind. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if it was now, I would say, dude, maybe not talking to your governess, consider therapy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, seriously. Which is a good point. He's totally using her as a therapist (laughs) to be like, hey, I really need to tell somebody. And there's even a section that he says, he's like, why? Like, so odd that you are the one that I'm telling this to. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's like, oh, but I know you. I trust you. You know, you're innocent. So I can't corrupt you with my story. 
but uh, I mean, you're pure in that way. Like you are uncorruptible and also you'll keep my secret and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, for our listeners who maybe are listening to this going, great ladies, but what are you talking about? Like what section (laughs) of the book are you talking about? Which I can't believe that you didn't re-listen to all of our book chapters right before this so that you were ready to go, which if you did gold star, it's in the mail. I'm intuiting it that mm-hmm. you did this. Mm-hmm. If, if it doesn't come, it's because the post office lost it. Oh, yeah. What a bummer. Oh, not our fault. Um, <laughs> not our fault at all. So we left off at the end. We, we read for today, chapters 15 through 20. Mm-hmm. So we start with that scene that you were talking about where Rochester is sort of justifying his actions from the night before, where he was, he explained, he said he was going to explain more about why he was kind of such a dick to Adele when she was just wearing a pretty dress and he does do that, which is what a man saying he's going to explain later and then explaining later. Uh, And then shortly after that, uh, I think we were all shocked when there was a fire in the middle of the night and Jane woke up, saved Mr. Rochester. And then he immediately left only to come back with a bunch of guests and insisting that Jane join the guests every night And then there's a whole gypsy thing, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. (laughs) And then Mr. Mason shows up and he gets attacked in the middle of the night. And they, we ended with uh, Mr. Rochester speaking very cryptically after they had sort of whisked Mr. Mason away Mm -hmm. without any of the other guests knowing about the attack in the night. Sort of cryptically, but also rather blatantly like I will save that to the end let's talk about this chronologically but my god if I'm just imagining this as he's like staring at Jane he's like someone could save me Jane it's like she's like um oh, is it Blanche <laughs> he says um is it Blanche but again yeah. we'll talk about this later um one I do have one bummer so we're gonna do it right here at the beginning right at the top (laughs) so we can just talk about it and then move right along so something that is referenced frequently in the book it's been sort of alluded to prior to this and is very heavy in this section as we're introduced to a bunch more people is something that is I'm gonna say off the top is not at all remotely based in any sort of science and is deeply upsetting and racist. Yes. Which is the study of phrenology. So Mm -hmm. phrenology was the definition, according to Google, is a pseudoscience that involves measuring a bumps on the skull to predict mental traits. It's based on the idea that the brain is an organ of the mind and that certain areas of the brain locate certain functions or, or modules. So basically the idea is You can look at somebody's head and their features and tell if they're smart or creative or kind or cool or whatever. There's obvious problems with that. Yes. Which is racism. And it was obviously used to do that. You cannot tell who a person is just by looking at them. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of the vibes that I got from this whole (laughs) section was it was very like, I don't want to equivocate astrology and phrenology because they're not even remotely the same because one is 
like a fun thing that I enjoy like reading about, <laughs> um, but have, but I personally have no ties to. And the other is a tool that led, that was the predecessor to eugenics, which I'll talk about here in just a second. And then I swear to God, we'll move on. Oh my God. Do uh, we need to talk about eugenics on this podcast? So, just so fast because this is, it's, it does really, really matter because oh I couldn't read this without when we're reading it the way that we're reading it, where mm-hmm. we're tr- going to discuss it and we're looking into it, you have to call that shit out because it yeah. is, it does really, really matter. But the way that Jane talks about it in this book, it feels very much like when there's two different astrology girls who are both very into astrology, but they interpret it in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. One astrology girl is like, Ugh. And Blanche was like saying all of this stuff about people's phrenology, but she was so wrong because (laughs) the kind of phrenology that she does isn't real, but the kind of phrenology that I do is real, which phrenology was something that Charlotte Bronte was very into. I don't know a lot more about it than that, but it was definitely harmful, but it was definitely the lighter, more, it was a softer kind of bigotry Mm -hmm. than than which is a very hard kind of bigotry. So eugenics is essentially like eugenics. People went, (laughs) phrenology is not science guys. We need to make it a science. And so eugenics also is absolutely not a science. It was genuinely used to perpetrate horrendous crimes. I'm going to read a quick definition again off of Google about eugenics, knowing that phrenology, which is this harmful thing that we're talking about, directly led to eugenics. So eugenics is a method of, quote, improving the human race. It is definitely uh, discredited and unscientific and is racially based during the 20th century and was eventually adopted by the Nazis to justify their treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. It was also used to justify slavery, like kind of as like a retroactive, like that was okay sort of thing. And a bunch of other like horrendous human rights violations. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why it matters so much that we call this out. (laughs) This is not like a cool way for her to describe faces. Mm -hmm. This is an incredibly harmful system of beliefs that I don't think she's, I genuinely don't believe that Charlotte Bronte is writing this going. And that's why black people suck. And this is why we should round up all the Jews. I think she's trying to make it like a cool way to describe her characters and make it so that their external looks reflect their internal whatever and add layers of characterization to her characters. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly problematic and definitely, definitely not okay. Yeah. Agreed with everything you said. I, I'm sure she was in kind of this little bubble mm-hmm. of information that she had around this. And I don't think she was thinking of other races at all. She was just thinking of like the white people that she knows and the white characters mm-hmm. that she's writing. And so she's like, oh, well, I'm going to give him like an intelligent forehead and other shit like that. And it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. But yeah, so definitely pl- problematic stuff that I think she was just using kind of blindly. But yeah, I mean, we can't know for sure whether or not she was... <laughs> using it hatefully or blindly. I mm-hmm. also, based off of the very little we know about her, would say that it was most likely blindly. It was most likely from a place of ignorance rather than malice. The other thing too is like, 
I don't like the, well, it was a different time. So people were allowed to be racist then. That's not true. However, it was an incredibly popular thing at the time. So it's not like she's going out of her way to introduce some hateful whatever Mm -hmm. to a group of people who've never heard of this. This Mm -hmm. is, she's speaking to people in a language that they understand. She's referencing something that was like incredibly common at the time, which again, doesn't make it okay, but Mm -hmm. does mean that she's not like perpetuating something brand new. She's speaking about something that at the time was very, very popular. Right. So the modern reader at the time would see her describing these features and get ideas about the character that she would want them to get. And would have Um, taken it with the same level of seriousness that I would take an astrology comparison. However... (laughs) Not with a level of hate that an astrology comparison, as far as I'm aware, doesn't have. So well, now that we've addressed that's the that. end of Lillian's phrenology section, I am a little bit sorry because I don't like to bum you guys out, but I'm also not sorry because it's important that we read things critically. It is. Let's talk about the cute, sweet boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How much I want him to do the kisses. <laughs> okay. So my first notes right off the bat when they're walking through the the gardens or whatever the next day and he's doing this long sort of admittance you know he's talking about this affair that he had with Adele's mother and he's describing all of these things one thing that i wrote down here that struck me is his decision to tell Jane the truth about this, even though just later on he says, like, how strange that I'm sharing this to you. I think it's sort of like a subconscious, like, sub- like admission. But I think it's sort of him acknowledging that he wishes he could be truthful with Jane. And I think that's important to see up front for his character. He's like, I want to be honest with you, but he can't tell her his really big secret. So he Mm. can tell her his minor secret of, hey, I went to Europe and I like banged this lady and I gave her lots of stuff, but then she made fun of me and slept with another guy. So I shot the dude in the arm and I threw her out on the street. And then later she's like, Oh, here's a kid. It's yours. And all this stuff. So I think it's, that's what stood out to me. I think he partially wants to get it off his chest because he has all of these secrets, which I think lead to him rambling in the way that he does. But then also I think it's his kind of way of trying to be like, I'm trying to be honest with you, Jane. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. give you a bit of a understanding of me. And it also gives him an opportunity to discuss his baggage without revealing that bigger secret, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's so funny that this is his less big secret, right? Like he knows, he knows that this is a huge scandalous secret that he doesn't discuss with most people. Like this Mm -hmm. isn't something that is like openly known and talked about. It's probably some, we've seen in some other adaptions, um, specifically the seventies one comes to mind where they're the group is dancing and they're discussing Adele's likely parentage and stuff, but people don't know the truth of that. And they would never ask him the truth of that, Mm -hmm. but there aren't forever consequences to, I mean, other than Adele, who he can sort of bring in and be like, she's my ward. Um, but even that he explicitly says, Adele is not my child, which I have lots of notes about. I think we should discuss whether we think this is true or not. 
because so here's the things that like really stood out to me. I was really closely analyzing that because I will say mm-hmm. going in, I personally want him to be her dad because to me that's really cute and like for him caring for her. And even if she isn't his, his blood relation, it's still sweet that he's caring for her. But so like some of the things that, um, so on page 170, he's kind of talking about this and he says, but unluckily the Varens six months before had given me this Filetti, I'm not sure if I said that right, Adele, who she affirmed was my daughter, and perhaps she may be. That's a line that's there. That stood out to me. Mm. Though I see no proof of such grim paternity written on her countenance, Pilate is more like me than she. <laughs> Later on in that passage, he says, nor do I now acknowledge any, for I am not her father. Uh, and it goes on, and there's other things like that. A few things I want to like point out. The fact that he mentions, and perhaps she may be. So there is this, this chance there that she mm-hmm. is his like his actual child. And I love that what he follows up with of his reasoning of why she isn't is because she's such a happy, carefree girl and he's so burdened by his sadness and identifies with his sadness as part of like who he is that he's like, she couldn't be mine because she's happy and untroubled like I am. And so that's a really interesting detail. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Because that's so sweet. Mm-hmm. That idea, I I read that and I didn't read that part as closely because I sort of thought that he was being a dick and being and doing what he talks about a lot with Adele, which is like she's just sort of like vapid and not that smart. Like, mm-hmm. but the idea that it's her joy that he doesn't identify with, yeah, that's who I'm going to read it from now on. Yeah, that's so sweet. Why well, yeah. do have another piece here that you wanted to talk about? But I just wanted to specifically say you do. I like that. Oh, thank you. Yes, I like that too. And there's like other stuff later on that kind of goes to talk about like that and the way that he feels about it. There's Mm -hmm. a passage later where Jane is just sitting with Adele and she says, I sought in her countenance and features a likeness to Mr. Rochester, but found none. No trait, no turn of expression announced relationship. It was a pity. If she could but have been proved to resemble him, he would have thought more of her. And again, I'm thinking to myself now, where there are plenty of people who don't they resemble one parent over the other so if Mm -hmm. she is his his actual child then she probably just like you know looks exactly like her mother which he has said uh Mm -hmm. he sees her and he's like wow you're a tiny version of this woman i was in love with so it could be simply you know that she doesn't have a lot of his features but she could still be his child but what i go on in interpreting this because again like i want this to be true so i have here he says that he's not her father but it's in jane's reply that to me confirms that he is because when she's talking about he's like now that you know the truth about her you're going to to like cast her aside and she says I have a regard for her and now that I know she is in a sense parentless forsaken by her mother and disowned by you which to me the use of the word to disown someone is typically only Mm -hmm. used amongst family and so I Mm want to believe that she is and again there's no confirmation apart from he has decided that she's not his child but she could be. Yeah. I think, I think the question mark there, regardless, like regardless of whether or not she is or isn't the fact that it's unclear that I almost feel the opposite of what you're saying. I agree that it's, it would be cute and I can see that, but I think I almost like reading it more if he, if we see it the way that he sees it, which is, I don't think she is mm-hmm. because regardless of whether or not she is, he still took her in. Like he yeah. does, he does at a minimum, he doesn't think 
that yeah. she's his daughter. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he went, I don't, he doesn't like her mom. He thinks mm-hmm. that her mom is sort of a garbage person. And we see like the, the flow of that from like being brought in by her charms and her beauty to being, and like real, like seeing in that moment when she's cheating on him, oh, he, she's actually terrible. And I immediately don't like her to, to then like know that about her and know that he like, has this child, he like thought this child was his, and then he decides that it's not his child. But as soon as Adele needed someone, he showed up without question Mm -hmm. and took her in. And I think it's the same thing we talked about with the vulnerability of her and Miss Fairfax Mm -hmm. when we were first talking about like, he acts like he's this asshole and he behaves like an asshole frequently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We see a lot more of that man in these chapters. <laughs> but I think the fact that he took her in despite believing that she's not his, mm-hmm. that makes me like him more because particularly at this time, like no one in that society, even if there was a 90% chance that it was his child, but there was a 10% chance it wasn't. Mm-hmm. If she slept with one other person one time. Mm-hmm then he has no responsibility for that child. Like no one thinks he should have to take that child in. Yeah. And he does it anyway, risking social pariah, like being a social pariah because of it. Like Mm -hmm. everything he did was considered okay in the society, not talked about, but okay. Like having an affair with a French opera singer is fine Mm -hmm. for a man in his station. Like Mm -hmm. you're allowed to do that. You have no responsibility for those children. (laughs) And mm-hmm. it's, to- and if you think that's not your kid, you definitely don't have to take that kid in. Yeah. I wonder if it's a way of kind of reading, does Rochester, he longs to be able to care for someone and to have someone mm-hmm. care for him. And so that might be part of it too, of being like, well, I'll take in this child and she'll be affectionate toward me perhaps. And I can, you know, give her things that make her happy and stuff like that. So maybe that's kind of filling that, that need for him to some extent. Yeah. And I also think he doesn't, similar to Jane and how Jane talks about how knowing this child is unloved makes me want to hold her closer and love her more. Yeah. I really think that Rochester is a lot of that same baggage of, I, people did not treat me properly. I did not have the, the, despite having all of these privileges, I didn't have people who looked out for me and cared for me. I had selfish parents. I had a selfish father and a selfish brother Mm -hmm. who did something very manipulative to me to get this thing. And it was no fault of mine. Mm -hmm. So it's no fault of this child that she's in a position where she's been abandoned, whether or not she's mine. And I'm the only person who could take her. So I will. We get a big chunk where they just kind of talk about the time before the bed fire scene where Jane and Rochester, I feel like really connect with one another. Mm -hmm. And it's that section of story that I have not yet seen in, I think, any adaptation that comes to mind that does it well enough that expresses, okay, for like a couple of weeks, they were just hanging out together. He was telling her stories of his travels and she Mm -hmm. was amazed by it. They were growing closer. She has this section that she says, uh, it's on 172. I want to read that as well, where she talks about how- Can you reference the chapters as well? Because I do think that the page numbers are different edition to edition, but the chapters are the same. This is in chapter 15. On my book, it's page 172. And it's what I wrote down here is that Jane's joy is 
palpable. Like you can, you can feel how much this is affecting her. She says, so happy, so gratified did I become with this newest interest added to life that I ceased to pine after kindred. My thin crescent destiny seemed to enlarge. The banks of existence were filled up. My bodily health improved. I gathered flesh and strength. And it's this idea that she's like physically becoming like more well, like she's gaining color. She's not so skinny and thin anymore, which after he leaves, he comments on that when he stops her on the staircase and says, he's like, no, you're pale. Have you taken ill? Like she is literally physically affected by her time and happiness with him, which is like, could be seen as maybe like you depend too much on this person, but also like she just is someone who's been deprived of love. So of course she reacts this way, but I loved that. Well, and I also think if anybody's reading Jane Eyre and going, all of these relationships are healthy, I think maybe you have a problem. Um, (laughs) But I I think one of the things that I really love about it is So often Jane is referring to the idea of travel is what she wants and she wants to explore the world and enjoy the world and go beyond all of these things. And I think often I have experienced a lot of those pieces of life by traveling and I Mm -hmm. love traveling. And I think it's such a great thing that people who are able to should definitely do an experience, but a lot of people aren't able to. And Jane in the circumstances that she's sitting in during this chapter, wouldn't be able to like, there's, there's not going to be an example where even though we know Rochester is in love with her and going to sweep her off her feet and wants to take her to Europe and travel and all of that stuff, it's not really possible for her. However, I think this is such a great example that just because travel isn't accessible to her doesn't mean experiencing the world isn't right. And that finding that, that truly what she was looking for, that the travel and the desire to like be somewhere else and do something else was really about experiencing life more and Mm -hmm. just having that depth of all of those things that she's had. I don't want to say she's had a really shallow experience, but she's only been able to have a shallow experience. And we know that Jane has such a depth of spirit and life and all of those things. So when she's in a space that's very shallow, she's not thriving. And when she gets into this space where she's allowed to be this deeper version of herself, mm-hmm. even though that's through this man, that's really, I think there's other situations where she could be put in a situation where she's able to be her full self. Yeah. And that's what's really feeding her spirit. And that's what's really making her like, fill out and grow in that way. Absolutely. I I want to punctuate this with another thing that she says just a little further down. I'm going to preface this by saying she's described all this happiness, right? And mm-hmm. she understands that many people associate beauty with happiness. And so mm-hmm. she's like, oh, like, does this mean that you thought he was super sexy and everything? And she says, and was Mr. Rochester now ugly in my eyes? No reader. Gratitude and many associations, all pleasurable and genial, made his face the object I best like to see his presence in a room was more cheering than the brightest fire and it's so cute and it like really captures just how happy she is and how I think we can anticipate how happy she will be at the end of this tale when they're finally Mm -hmm. together as they should be so it's it's very warm and it's very comforting and of course as such a good writer as Bronte is she gives us that feeling before snatching it away (laughs) I think I have another piece within this chapter because there's you and I have talked before getting into this. I think you texted me after you finished reading chapter 15. And you're like, we might have a too big of a chunk because I could talk for an hour just about chapter 15. So yes. specifically a note on that uh, beauty reference. I think you called out earlier examples um, in some of our previous book episodes of Jane 
associating not physical traits Mm -hmm. with beauty, but instead people being kind, people being smart, people being like all these things. And I love that the first description of Rochester is he wasn't handsome. Therefore he wasn't intimidating to me. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into now that I know him and I have this relationship with him, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I think it is that it's the way, if you've ever seen a friend in love and you look at the guy and you're like, I'm so, or their partner or whoever, and just be like, this person's, I'm happy for you, but that person is not attractive and you seem very <laughs> attracted to them. It's about the connection. And I love that. And I love this being like such a tangible example of like rose colored glasses in the best way. Oh yes. La vie en rose. <laughs> One other thing that I want to talk about, and it actually loops back to what we were talking about with the story of Celine and the way he kind of goes off rambling, Mm -hmm. something that I caught in this that I don't think we've seen and would be hard to translate into an adaption is how a chunk of that rant is very clearly about Bertha. There we go. I wanted to say Blanche, (laughs) which is why Piper saw my face look panicked. (laughs) I was like, I got you. (laughs) That's what it does when I can't. Anyway, Bertha. (laughs) It was very clearly about Bertha. Mm -hmm. And he specifically says, so the the line that Jane is observing. So he's been talking about Celine. He started talking about kind of the the difficulties of his life and, and trying to contextualize this moment for Jane. And he has a moment where he lifts his eyes to Thornfield's battlements and casts them over with a glare such as I have never seen before or since. Pain, shame, ire, impatience, disgust, detestation. Detestation? Yeah. There was a hard word for nails. Um, <laughs> seemed momentarily to hold a quivering conflict. So all he looks up at the battlements and we as readers who have this dramatic irony of knowing that he's looking up at Bertha Mm -hmm. has all of these emotions come up all together. And I think that that's such, this is such a moment of understanding his character that he has this, that the first three words really describe how he feels about Bertha to me, Mm -hmm. pain, shame, ire. Yeah hurt by what happened. He feels ashamed of the situation that he is in and Mm -hmm. he's so angry. And Bertha is the only person he can take that out on. Yeah. All of that anger has to be directed at her because everyone else involved is dead. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that section because I made a point about that too, because it's this interesting reprieve. It's this break in the middle of his story And Jane has to literally pull him back to it to be like, so what happened when you were on the balcony? And he's like, oh yeah, Paris, I forgot. But it is that interesting thing where just looking at his home, he, it makes him think of her because he knows that she's Mm -hmm. there. And I even wondered, I made a note about this when I went back, I was like, I know he says he was looking at the battlements and later he talks, he's like, oh, just like Hamlet, I saw a hag by that tree and it's like imaginary or whatever. And I'm like, I wonder if he glanced up and he saw Bertha in the window or something. And I'm like, what if he saw his his wife, the source of his pain, and then is like, oh, shit, she's there and she's looking at me and I have to now remember her, too. And mm-hmm. so I, I want to say it's that. the 2006 adaption where they have that red scarf that often represents Bertha. And that's sort of what I picture where it doesn't need to be something quite that visual in a book, but he's looking up and whether he sees her or not, he knows that's her window, right? Like he's looking up towards the battlements. That's what 
Jane thinks it is because what else would he be looking at the third floor that would be crazy (laughs) that is what he's looking at he has that section where he's like talking about how he wants to love his home and he like is gonna Mm -hmm. like try and like will himself to love it again aka like by marrying Jane but who knows yeah um, well, and I think anytime he references Thornfield, you can tell that there's this dual meaning of like, and I think it, of, of talking about Bertha and his, mm-hmm. and all of those things and all the baggage that comes along with that. And I think what this says to me, and especially when you read it with some of the things that we saw in chapter 20 is that he wants to be honest with Jane, but yeah. he doesn't want to burden Jane. And he yeah. references that a couple of times in this like rambling that he goes on where Jane has to call him back to the moment to finish the story. Mm-hmm. He talks about the idea that he doesn't want to burden her. He, but like he, if you, it doesn't seem like that, like it's sort of this roundabout weird way of saying it, but we know that that's what he's saying is like, he wants to be as honest as he can with Jane mm-hmm. without burdening her. I think is the kindest way to look at it. The most right. cynical way is without being honest with her mm-hmm. and continuing to kind of keep her in this position of like doing what he wants and manipulating her, which I don't think that's not like, I think that's still true. Mm -hmm. I think there's, he's definitely manipulating her. Like anybody who reads this and doesn't see that he's manipulating her, it's whether or not the manipulation is acceptable and justified. Mm -hmm. I think if it's, again, it's one of the reasons why it's so hard to do a modern adaption of this. Like, unlike where a lot of Jane Austen, we see like oh, well, here's a version of Emma that's actually now in the 80s. Um, And like, here's a version of Pride and Prejudice that's actually a high school in 1999. Like Mm -hmm. all of those things, they can do that with those books because they're not so tied to the societal constraints at the time in this very specific way that now you can't translate that ethically. Before we move on to the burning bed scene, one of my last notes about this, because there's quite a few long passages where it's just simply Jane, like going over her thoughts about Rochester and just kind of her inner kind of like thinking about him and her feelings about him and everything. And when I was reading that, it made me kind of long for essentially like a Midnight Sun like book, which redoes Jane Eyre, but it's told from the perspective of Rochester. Cause I'm like, I want to hear his inner thoughts to be like, what does he think of Jane and all this stuff going on that he doesn't say out loud? That would be wild. Here is like justification of everything. Have you, do you know that there's at least two books that do that? Oh my gosh. I'm not surprised. So <laughs> I would totally check those out. There's I, I, cause I was just over the past weekend digging through my most visited Wikipedia page, which is the Jane Eyre adaption page, Amazing. which has a bazillion things on it, including a whole section of books that has like, this is supposed to be a sequel to Jane Eyre. This is supposed to be Jane Eyre from Rochester's perspective. Some of the Rochester's perspective ones have bad reviews. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) Um, But I definitely, it's something that we would consider doing. So if that's something that if you want us, if you have a version of the book that is told from Rochester's perspective and you, A, really, please, if we're going to read a book, please make it one you liked. I don't want to read a bad book. I'm sorry, guys. We love you, but I don't love you eight hours of a bad book. If you've written a fan fiction where it's the retelling with uh, Rochester, send us that. I will so read it and be, I just can't wait. So if you have any (laughs) Jane related fanfic, 
send it to Jane us. <laughs> Jane Eyre. Okay, I might not read all the Jane Eyre related fanfic you love, but I would read some of it if Piper pre-screens it for me. I will. Um, <laughs> but absolutely, like if you have a version of Jane Eyre that you love as a book that you think is worth reading, you can send it to us and we'll 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 try. We'll at least look into it because we're we're movie people, we're TV people more than the genuinely 20 plus books that are considered related to Jane Eyre. Although we do have an author coming on shortly to discuss a Bertha related book, but I'm sure we'll tell yes. you more about that in the future. Yes. We should keep that as a little more of a surprise, but just but, what you're but I want to, I want to allude to it. So you guys know it's coming. <laughs> Get excited. So are you ready to talk about the burning bed scene? No, I'm not emotionally prepared yet. I need like six more weeks. My first note here, and I wrote this in all caps, Jane puts out the fire by yes. herself. Yes, yes, she does yes. does not get out yes. of bed until the flames are extinguished. Why do the movies make him like mostly do it with yeah. her? It's like, no, it's way better if she's like, bitch, I just saved you. And he's like, bitch, you just saved me. Like that's yep. how it should yep, be. Yep, 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 yes, yes. That is also oh. my first note. I wrote it so big on the top of that page. I was like, Jane saves him. He doesn't do shit. Yes, he just lays there in a puddle and he's like, he's like, is there a flood? <laughs> like, why am I all wet? <laughs> Here's the only justification I could think of for the adaptions. All, all mm-hmm. having him wake up and save himself a little bit, mostly. A lot of them have him do it mostly. <laughs> is that how could he have slept through her pouring two pitchers of water and then running back to her room to get a third pitcher of water and then pouring a pitcher, all of which would have hit him, right? Yes. So like, I get that the logistics of this situation are easy to ignore in a book. And if you watch a man sleep through a fire in his bed well, he gets hit by three pitchers of water, it would probably not work out. However, uh-huh. you could absolutely make some minor changes to the way the fire happens mm-hmm. so that it's just a fire in the room or it's only half of the bed that's on fire and it's not the half that he's in. There are tons of other ways to change the story mm-hmm. where Jane is still the one putting out the fire. Every adaption makes it so that Jane wakes him up and then he puts out the fire. Or they do it together. that shit. I know, seriously. My only thing that I can think of of like why he wouldn't have gotten up is... Because in as we see in many versions, the room is like full of smoke. So he might just be kind of like partially unconscious from smoke inhalation. So that might be part of it. That maybe it's just taking a long time for him to cough all the smoke out of his lungs. Absolutely. And I think... Yeah. I think there's lots of ways to justify why he would stay asleep. Mm-hmm. I think it's lazy and we've talked about the idea that a lot of the adaptions are products of other adaptions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what's been done in the other ones. And if one happens again, if we hear it, first of all, I'm out here on the lookout. We are due for a new Jane Eyre adaption. I'm keeping <laughs> my head on a swivel because it's been 11 years mm-hmm. since home <laughs> the fast vendor one. So it's we about are dang due time. Yes. for a Jane Eyre adaption. And when I hear the those little rumblings in the distance of a Jane Eyre adaption, I'm sending them a letter and I'm telling them that if I, I swear to God, if Jane doesn't put out the fire by herself, I will pick it. Oh my I will God. stand outside all alone in my Kmart parking lot. <laughs> 
and I will be so mad. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were going to write them and be like, I demand that Piper and I be invited to the premiere. I um, mean, that's obvious. <laughs> yeah, doy. <laughs> that's, that's sort of like the PS. Like, PS, I'm so excited that you're doing this. I would love to come. We have this whole thing that we do. <laughs> amazing <laughs> but but also if you fuck up the burning bed scene i will never forgive you oh my goodness um okay so i'm gonna do some more there's gonna be a lot of passage reading for me in this one because these are like so important are you ready for this lion the stuff that he says to jane so there, all this stuff happens he he wraps her in his cloak she sits there he comes back i love his whole like he's like um you probably saw something right she's like no i heard a laugh and it's this and he's like yep you guessed it <laughs> dodge the bullet there don't have to admit anything but then he has you know this cute like romantic moment with her when he's like you should leave and she's like okay i'll go and he's like you're gonna leave me really like just like that you're gonna quit me and all the beautiful stuff the passage that i need to talk about here is when he says i knew he continued you would do me good in some way at some time i saw it in your eyes when i first beheld you their expression and smile did not again he stopped did not he proceeded hastily strike delight into my very innermost heart so for nothing and i'm like oh my gosh like he for me the way i read that is i'm like he's afraid to admit his romantic feelings he's like can i do i dare mention my innermost heart which will surely say to her that i love her and he's like he's like fuck it i'm gonna do it like yes like you mean a lot to me i've liked you since the beginning i'm so glad you're here oh boy that was like the first kind of like admittance. And that's a big deal. Yeah, it's so sweet. And I have another thing that I want to reference there towards the end. But within that speech that you're talking about, I think something that I don't know I've ever picked up on before. And I think a lot of this, 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 after the fire is out, most of this scene is fairly true to what we see in a lot of the adaptions. Those are pieces of that speech we've seen in other adaptions, although not quite as lovely. But I think one of the things that... I started to question in this that I haven't in the adaptions is I am kind of reading this scene as him inviting her to stay with him. Oh, totally. And I think he's like, let's have sex. Let's do it. Yeah. I think he wants her to have sex with him. And I think if she did in that moment, he would have had an affair with her and they would have just had this love affair. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me adds this layer of, Okay. So now let's, like you're saying, like, let's put ourselves in Rochester's shoes. Let's say that he, with, with a lot of opportunity for her to say no, tried to get this woman to agree to an affair with him and she chose to walk away. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting there himself in his room being like, I love Jane. She is so smart. And I like talking to her and I want to give her kisses all the time, but I can't (laughs) give her kisses all the time because she's not my wife and it's olden times. Mm -hmm. And you can't just give kisses to people who aren't your wife. Jane should be my wife. We should do kisses all the time. Well, I can't just marry my governess. Plus I'm already married. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, oh, you know, I love Jane so much. I would do a bigamy and I wouldn't have to tell her what a great idea. Self, you did it. But what if Jane doesn't love me? Like she did just turn me down to have an affair. Maybe she doesn't love me. I have to figure out if she really loves me first. I know. (laughs) Edward Rochester, you genius. I'm going to go and get this pretty lady and I'm going to pretend that I'm in love with her and I'm going to say Jengis jelly. Also, I might do some costuming at some point and do a little drag, 
But really, I think the figuring out if she loves me the best way, not be honest with her about my feelings, because that's a big risk. But <laughs> go find somebody else to do smooshes of in front of her. <laughs> okay, first of all, that should be our adaptation. It's just <laughs> Lillian being Rochester's inner monologue. <laughs> and like how he like rationalizes his decisions. Oh, Rochester, you're genius. You're genius. <laughs> oh my God, I loved that, Lillian. That was so good. But yes, no, like, okay. Yes, no, okay. The thing here that we have to yeah with like his mindset about this is like you say she just turned me down twice Mm -hmm. Uh, do I dare you know put forward my emotions I think to someone who is more kind of worldly and experienced in the ways of romance like Rochester is it would be pretty obvious that when he's holding her hand there and they're standing in the bedroom and everything and he's like really you're you're gonna go like aren't we gonna you know like have some kisses and some fun touching and all that good stuff and but she you know innocent yes some fun touching uh and she like innocent and sweet and uh very you know like holy and pious or whatever is like um i should not be in this room with you when we both are this hot and bothered and so yeah it is because before in the chapter we didn't talk about in chapter 15 is when he introduces you know this idea of like have you never known jealousy, Jane? No, of course not, because you've never been in love. And so he puts that two and two together and says, maybe that's the way without, you know, making a fool of myself in front of this girl, because she already said no two times mm-hmm. to my sexual advances or implications. I can get her to confess without, you know, talking about it with this jealousy ploy. So it is interesting the way this kind of like builds and evolves from that kind of first seed that's planted. And then he's like, oh, let's let's maybe keep on going with this. Yeah, and I does I I think the the thing that I'm curious about with that moment and knowing that he's trying to sleep with her, which I don't know if that's just my little innocent brain being like, I don't know, he didn't say do you want to have sex with me, so I guess he didn't. Like, I think maybe Jane read it the way that I read it, which is like that was awfully scandalous. We held hands, oh, but maybe not being like, oh, he was asking me to have sex with him well so let's like pick up though on some of the the details that she picks up on herself so after he says that she then says strange energy was in his voice strange fire in his look and i'm like he's got a fire in his eyes jane you know what that means um then when she goes back uh there's this passage here which i think is really interesting where she said i regained my couch but never thought of sleep Till morning dawned, I was tossed on a buoyant but unquiet sea where pillows of trouble rolled under surges of joy. And it is this like interesting, like how does um, a repressed virgin express her horniness? Like, is that it? <laughs> like, is she being like, that was way too hot. I can't sleep now. Like, who knows? Um, but she at least is aware of some of this like sexual tension, I think. Yeah, I think she's aware of the sexual tension. I think she's aware of there being something like heat there. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that she's aware of the possibility of having an affair with him. Like, I don't think she understood that as an invitation to have an affair with him. Right. Um, Which I think you can lay a lot of this stuff out that's been happening as Rochester being like, I would definitely have an affair with you. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, it's so lovely that he kind of came to the conclusion after this fire that he doesn't want an affair with her. He wants to marry her. Yeah. Which is a different level of commitment and means so much. And it sucks that he can't can't mm-hmm. legally and ethically marry her in this time mm-hmm. but that's 
such a beautiful thing that he doesn't, he doesn't want part of her. He doesn't, it's the thing that he says in that stay speech that I'm, that is either in the book or I'm going to burn it. Um, (laughs) Which is, I don't want to make it be, I don't want to go like too far, but I'm going to become a book burner, even though I don't believe in that sort of stuff. And I love Jane Eyre. (laughs) If they don't have the line of wanting not, he could make her stay, but he wants her mind, not just Mm -hmm. her body. I think that this is another example of that. He wants her. He wants her to be his wife. He wants them to have a life together Mm -hmm. and he doesn't want a compromised version of that. And he, he would accept that for himself, but he doesn't want that for Jane. He's just unwilling to lay everything out there and risk that emotionally, but he wants to give that to her. And he Mm -hmm. knows that he wouldn't really be able to have that, but she could have it. She could have their marriage. Yeah. He thinks he is under the impression that he could keep this secret forever Mm -hmm. and that he could, that Jane could have a pure life where he's protected her from all those things. Delusional. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) But not a bad motive. So she wakes up the next morning. She's like, I can't wait to hear his voice. I'm so excited to see him. This man I love, I definitely don't have a problem. I just want to see him and talk to him. And she spends all day waiting for him and we get to wait along with her. Um, (laughs) and then we find out he left. Mm -hmm. But before he left, there's a couple of things, just two little details I need to call out. One, there's a scene where Jane is down in the kitchen and all of the people are talking about getting ready. Maybe it's actually, okay, maybe this is after he's left. But I thought this was so interesting. She overhears the servants talking and they say, I have it on page 193 and says, the servants are like, doesn't she know? And they're referring to the person who's in the house. And so this says to me that the servants know that Grace has someone she's looking after because they're aware of like they're like oh that's why she's paid so much she has like at least they know of some kind of secret well i think they know the secret because in that line they say she's paid more but i i I can't complain i'm paid well too and i couldn't do what she does right yes so they know her responsibilities which then made me think of because i do believe what you said earlier that i think Mm -hmm. fairfax is kind of oblivious Mm -hmm. but then i'm like how would the servants know but fairfax doesn't know and then i remembered that earlier when jane first gets there fairfax says oh well i can't talk with the servants that would be improper so i'm like maybe she's just that out of the loop because of her own social standards and i'm like wow like really? <laughs> yeah. It also, it makes more sense to me too. Like it makes sense to me that the servants who aren't Mrs. Fairfax would be like, um, I'm not going to just be cool with working in a place where we don't know who that person is. Who's always laughing up there. And this one servant like never hangs out with us and like never comes, takes meals with us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, maybe like there's just fires in the middle of the night. Like I'm going to need more context than that. Mm-hmm. And then figuring that out, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me because only one of them would need to know for all of them to know. Right. But I, I agree with you. I hadn't, cause I was having that same moment of like, we know, no, maybe your sweet little bean does know. And she's just, but that point of she doesn't talk to the servants. I feel like you're going to have more notes about this big section where, you know, the party's going on. I didn't have much to talk about that. Yeah. A lot of it, I was like, I don't really care about this. I mean, these characters are important. Obviously they, they give us a source of comparison of the sort of society that Rochester despises and what he doesn't want versus what he does want in Jane. So establishing that, I understand the importance of it, but there is 
if I can jump to one of the parties where Blanche is like kind of chatting with everybody, there's this scene where she starts talking about how she prefers a not attractive man. Oh my God. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So she is talking about how she's like, Oh, men shouldn't be handsome or pretty. That's, that's the lady's job. I wouldn't want to be outshined. And she's like, Oh, it's better for a man to be, to be manly and tough and not like attractive. And so I think what she's trying to do is she's trying to like acknowledge that Rochester doesn't have classically good looks and tell him that it's okay in her weird way of like flirting, but she's failing at it because she doesn't understand him well enough. We know that Rochester is incredibly vain and self-conscious about his bad looks. And so, Mm -hmm. so Blanche being like, Oh, like, it's cool that you're not attractive. He's like in his head. I picture him being like, ouch, 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 you bitch. No, I don't tell me I'm not attractive. I want to pretend that I am. Where in reverse, we have these great passages of Jane, you know, looking at his face and talking about how she sees the beauty in his mm. unconventional features. And maybe that yeah. taps a little into some of the um, like feature stuff that you're talking about earlier that you don't like. But I thought that was an interesting balance of Blanche is like, I'm going to be nice to this ugly man, but I'm like, oh, you just failed. You just lost him there, baby. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I absolutely think if what we were doing was a deep dive into every single chapter of this book, we could go deep into what each of these characters and all of this stuff. But I think that the most important character that I want to talk about is Blanche. That's a, a peak Blanche moment. And the first thing that I wrote down here is what a bitch. <laughs> oh, I hate her so much. I wrote it in all caps. I wrote it on multiple pages in the book. I, oh. What a bitch. Jesus <laughs> Christ, Blanche. Woof, honey. Try to be like a good person for more than two seconds and do it on purpose, not just to charm this man. I hate her so much. I literally wrote down, here's here's some things I wrote about Blanche. Um, one, she's so much worse than in the books than in most of the movies. In most of the movies, she gets a really good edit. She is constantly condescending to Adele. Like her little note about puppet, like calling her a little puppet, we can hear from in Jane's head that that is like a sarcastic shitty line Mm -hmm. because they have that in some of the adaptions. And sometimes it's like, Oh, what a little puppet instead of like, Oh, what a little puppet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I literally wrote, she talks shit about Jane in front of Jane constantly. Mm -hmm. Yes. um, Which the only version where we see that to a level where like she knows Jane is there and she is saying it so Jane can hear her is the 1957 version, which I thought everything in there was wrong. Apparently I was wrong. <laughs> they Blanche right in that moment. There, I feel like there are scenes though, like I feel like the 80s version does that where, you know, she's like just kind of being vapid and like trying to be interesting by being like, oh, like governesses. I tormented yeah. all of mine. How interesting am I, right? Bragging about my yeah. cruelty. But I think a lot of times she does talk shit about governesses. I think in the book, she specifically talks shit about Jane. Yeah. Um, and I agree the 80s one probably has more of that. The more that we read this book and then I think about the 80s one, the more that I realize I was reeling from so many of the basic facts of Jane Eyre. Like her boss <laughs> is sitting on her constantly and she has a <laughs> wife locked in an actual attic. I did not pick up on the nuances of that. So I no am worries. genuinely so excited once we're done reading the book to go back and rewatch that so I can really, really see it as a Jane Eyre adaption instead of like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm so oh, excited. This is insane. We should do a sleepover and just binge it. That'd be great. Yay, that'd be so much fun. <laughs> but what you, you guys are invited in spirit. Yes, exactly. What you said though there, Lillian, it makes me think the fact that 
Blanche is so blatantly cruel to Jane. Do we gather that she does see Jane as a threat? Does she pick up on she must know like as if she's studying this man that she's trying to snare in her honey trap to marry and take his money she must be watching him closely and i'm sure she has observed rochester observing jane the same way that jane has observed rochester pretending to observe blanche yeah so i that's probably why she's being so cruel because she's like do you care about that lady? Like, she's nothing. I uh, Governesses suck, don't you think? <laughs> just like, boy, not Sutherland. Um, Yeah, I absolutely think that Jane and Rochester have massive crushes on each other, and there's no way that everyone else in that room doesn't know about it. Especially, right. like, I think some of the, like, men and some of the women that they that are, like, just there to enjoy the party probably aren't noticing. But Blanche is there to get Rochester to marry her. Of course mm-hmm. she's picking up on that. And of course that layers in it. And I feel like they probably have the same energy where like everybody knows. And like Blanche knows that these two have a thing for each other. She mm-hmm. just is like, like uh, her comments about governesses are partly probably being like, dude, you cannot marry a governess. Do you mm-hmm. understand how powerful you are and how rich you are? And you should be marrying somebody who has connections to a title and has pretty, pretty looks and is able to help you through society and doesn't care that you're ugly. And I think, yeah, I think that's also kind of, she's trying to bring up the danger of someone of his stature marrying a governess. I think when she references or someone at the party references that a governess they had at one point had like an affair with another one of the staff members. Mm-hmm. And that like would have been so shameful for the house. So they fired them. And it so, was, and it was the, the girl's governess was mm-hmm. having an affair with the boy's tutor. Yes. And that level was scandalous and right. they kicked him out. Right. And so they're like, so don't even think about smooching your, mm-hmm. the teacher that you hire, like, cause it'll be way worse than that Rochester. And he's like, bitch, I'm going to smooch the heck out of that girl. <laughs> You don't even know, <laughs> which, yeah. again, on talking about like how obvious it is to everyone there that he is totally into her when she gets emotional, when they're singing their duet and leaves and he instantly goes after her. <laughs> doy, doy, he's into his governess. You know, oh, um, but that scene, scene on the staircase, he is so tender to her. And again, the way that Bronte writes this is she typically just has these sections where it's just the dialogue, right? We don't get things of like, he looked at her with eyes of longing. You know, we don't have that. We just have the words. And so it's up for the audience to insert emotion based on everything else that we've been given. I read it as him kind of the way that like Darcy talks to Lizzie in the mm-hmm. the 2000 whatever movie. That's kind of how I see him when he sees that she's not well and then he's worried about her. And when he leaves, my favorite part is when he's like, if he's like, if I had time, I wouldn't know what this is all about. Like I imagine him wanting to like sit her down on the stair and sit next to her and be like, sweetie, what's wrong? Talk to me. But they can't obviously. And he mm-hmm. almost gives her a pet name before he leaves, but he stops himself. I'm like, oh, it's so cute. I, I want to talk about that. I also have one more thing that I want to talk about. And I, what I've written down, my notes in my book are Piper's Redemption. <laughs> because I found why you thought it was a slipper. Yes, because um, she stops to tie her own slipper. She stops and here's the passage because I think it's really important to talk about. So she says, Thence a narrow passage led to the hall. In crossing it, I perceived that my sandal was loose. I stooped to tie it, kneeling down for that purpose on the mat, on the stairs. <laughs> That's why you thought that she was tying, he was helping her with her slipper. Boom. You didn't fully invent it. 
Uh This was part of the book. Oh my gosh. I would like everyone to write letters to Piper apologizing. Nobody actually has to do that because she did sort of say a thing that wasn't true, (laughs) but I am personally saying, congratulations. You're only half crazy. You're not full crazy like me. Thank you, Lillian. I appreciate that. In my adaptation, she will be on her way up the stairs, stop to bend to tie her sandal, and then his hands will appear and he will help her tie it. And then they'll look up and meet each other's eyes. And it'll be so dang cute. And That's we'll my hear the voiceover of Rochester's voice going, Edward Rochester, you genius. <laughs> Edward Rochester, you slick son of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be my voice. My voice will always be his. <laughs> Someone else will play Rochester, but it'll be my voice doing his inner monologue. (laughs) Amazing. 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 (laughs) Well, the last piece here, the very last line of this chapter is him saying, good night, my, he stopped abruptly, bit his lip and abruptly left. (gasps) He was going to say my love. My sweetheart. Oh, Dodo. So cute. I... Ooh. personally love terms of endearment. I know they're not for everybody and they have to, for me, they have to come from the right place. Like if I'm, it's all contextual, like it, in a romance, give it to me. It's all I want. I want every single thing mm-hmm. to be the guy calling them my love, my darling, whatever, all of that. I love it. I completely agree. Like I yes. love, I love a term of endearment. Um, I, I think that's so sweet. And I think another parallel, similar to what you were referencing to a parallel between chapter 15 and chapter 20, there's another parallel to this moment where he's cutting himself off because he doesn't want to say the thing. Um, and that's at the end of chapter 20, when he, they're talking after Mason leaves and he says, he's, he's talking about all this stuff. I'm sure we'll discuss it again, but he Mm -hmm. says, and I believe that I have found the instrument for my cure in and then he cuts himself off. And Jane's like, what are going to possibly be talking about? And then they come to the conclusion that it's Blanche. I'm like, bitch, oh my God. I know, Jane. dude. God, okay. Again, I'm going to talk about that for a long time. So let's quickly move on so we can get to that point. The last thing I want to talk about with Blanche specifically. Okay. Before we talk about, we've got to talk about the gypsy. Oh, yes. Is Blanche is super judgy of everybody. Not a fan. The only person in the story that is judgier than Blanche is Jane. Girl, she's you very are mean. sitting there judging everyone so hard in your head. And she at least like Blanche's targets are the people who are sweet and just like kind of being little goobers and like don't realize that she's making fun of them. And she's actively trying to get them to do embarrassing things so that she can mock them for that. And mm-hmm. that sucks. So it yeah. is worse when Blanche does it. But Jane is sitting there judging people and she's like, oh, they were simple, whatever. Like, who cares about that? But here's the reasons why Blanche is a terrible person in every single way and deserves to go to hell. I'm like, okay, Jane, not better. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the same thing. It was stuff like that where I'm like, okay, you were very much a 18 year old girl who's very, Mm -hmm. you know, like angry at the popular girl in class who has the attention of the boy that she likes. And yeah. But again, when we compare the meanness of what Blanche says about like Jane versus the meanness that Jane thinks about Blanche, yes, neither are are good, but there's a kind of level of balance where it comes to um, Blanche has wealth, status, and power, and Jane Mm -hmm. does not. So her talking shit to people who are of a lesser position than her Mm -hmm. is cruel, where when Jane thinks mean thoughts about Blanche, it's her way of trying to, like, kind of protect herself and her fragile feelings 
for how threatened sure. she is by this person yeah. who she assumes is going to take the man that she loves away from her. And then I, I, and I think we're absolutely supposed to see the difference in that, that like, yeah. it's almost interesting how it's, it's almost as if Charlotte is telling us to not, you shouldn't, it, we shouldn't be upset about the judgment. We should be mm-hmm. upset about who she's judging, Yeah, which I, I absolutely agree. It's sort of like how with jokes and things, like you have to make sure that you're punching up is yes. the reference where it's mm-hmm. like, if, if you're making fun of someone who has more power than you, more social clout, more control over the situation, mm-hmm. then it's not as much bullying where mm-hmm. Blanche is very clearly only taking on fights that she believes she can win, which yes. sucks. Yes, exactly. And then a gypsy shows up. Yeah. So we get that really long and weird version of charades, which we don't need to talk oh about because it's just like so elaborate. It makes the um, 83 make more sense that they included the most insane game of charades. Yes. But <laughs> no, um, not for me. <laughs> so Rochester is clearly, though, loving the theatrics. And he's like, I could take this a step up. <laughs> like doing charades with my friends to make Jane jealous isn't quite enough. I'm going to pretend to go away on business sneak back into the house put on a gypsy costume and then demand that all the eligible ladies come in and talk to me and for some reason none of them will figure out that it's me just because i have soot on my face which first of all inappropriate and also like have dressed in drag and am shadowy and doing a funny voice (laughs) it's like wow these people are idiots yeah (laughs) um and there's so many things in the description of Rochester is the gypsy that are not okay. But you mentioned there's something that you actually mentioned on a previous episode, which is Rochester's just a little theater boy. Yes. Um, and I think that like you had referenced that right before we started reading this. I started reading this chapter. So I kept being like, oh my God, he's such a little theater boy. Because the an example from like earlier in this section was when he's telling the story about Celine, he like has this whole moment where he like pulls out a pipe and lights it. And it's very much like I was in Paris <laughs> when I lived in Paris. Picture me, a young lad in Paris, finally out there on my own. And I found a beautiful woman and fell in love. <laughs> he's the theater kid in the trench coat who's like, he's like, let me just tilt my fedora real quick while I tell you this tale. <laughs> Oh God, come on. Let me set the scene. <laughs> Big cloak. And you see that in the way that he plays the charades. You see that you absolute theater, theater boys who's doing the gypsy moment. Yes. Um, which we've talked about previously. Gypsy is not an acceptable term to use. It's not okay. But I also don't want to associate Romani people with the bullshit that this man, man is doing. <laughs> yes. So So of all of the stuff that we get out of that scene, the thing that I kind of took away that I thought was interesting of like, again, I'm always kind of trying to justify Rochester's or at least to get into Rochester's mindset to understand like how he justifies these actions. And so what I wrote down here is that Rochester as the gypsy is essentially saying to Jane, because he's like bringing forth all these things that he knows about her. He's like, oh, you have these feelings, right? Surely there's someone you like. It's his way of saying, I made the first move that night after the fire. Like I showed you that I was interested Mm -hmm. and now I need you to reciprocate that and confirm that if we're ever going to be together. And it really made me think of stuff that we talked about in pride and prejudice where 
Mm-hmm. Because Jane, that's the the blonde sister, is also a yes. Jane, right? Yeah. Because Jane is so shy, she does not express her feelings to Bingley. And everyone says, if she doesn't let him know that she's interested, he's going to get out of there because he can't be made a fool of going after this lady who doesn't care about him. So mm-hmm. it made me see similar parallels of that. Rochester obviously chose a weird way to go about it by dressing up and doing a voice. But I think it's his way of saying he's like, Jane do you like me? Like, I know you like me. Can you please say it? Like, I want to go forward with you with this. Cause again, even after he rips off the costume, it's essentially as if he did have that conversation with her. So it's like, now these cards are on the table. Yeah. I mean, Rochester, whenever there's a normal option and a weird option always goes with the weird option. Yes. Um, (laughs) That's the choices he's making. He's sort of just like out there being a goober, which is fine. It's Um, it's not fine, but it's fine. (laughs) It's that meme with, um, it's Drake, right? Who's doing the no and yeah. the yes point. Yes. Yeah, where, <laughs> where he's like, he's like, tell Jane my actual feelings. No, dress up in drag and make her confess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just wild. And there's some other moments within there that we could unpack, but won't. Just in the things that he says to her. But I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I don't, I don't think the gypsy scene is super justifiable. I no. think it's a very gross. I think that there is some pieces around that that are interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm never sad when it's not in an adaption, and I'm not more sad now. I don't feel like there's anything huge that we're missing from that. And I think there's better ways to use the time in the story than having this problematic scene. <laughs> totally. When I was reading all of his dialogue as this gypsy character, I was literally hearing uh, Timothy Dalton's like old lady hag voice in my ear. So I was like, well, that's fun. <laughs> oh, it's such a bad time. Anyway, <sighs> so, I, one, other, one other note kind of surrounding the gypsy, and then we'll talk about Mr. Mason. Mm-hmm. So we see a lot of Blanche when Mr. Rochester is not in the room, showing mm-hmm. more of her true colors and being mm-hmm. a garbage person. Yes. And so when he goes off to run his errands, AKA, dress up like a gypsy and come back. We see Blanche just like being that shitty popular girl where she's just trying to get everybody to do what she wants. And she sort of like is just declaring to the room that she's bored mm-hmm. and like do what I feel like doing. And when the, I can't remember, is it Sam? Is that the servant's name who comes in? I think so. We're going we're gonna to say Sam. Um, and it, I'm going to picture in my head, your fiance. Nice. Um, so when your fiance <laughs> walked into the room and said, um, there's a gypsy outside who really wants to come in and read everybody's fortune and they sort of all react with like tell her no yeah what (laughs) pretty intense which that's a scene that's going if we put the gypsy scene in our adaption we're putting the talk himself into the room scene where we see rochester being like no you guys you have to let me in (laughs) i need to find out if this girl likes me amazing um (laughs) it's like wait let me just peel off this beard and mustache look it's me put it back on Still, they come in and Blanche is all on board with that too. She's like, no, send him away. And then her mom goes, yeah, we can't have my precious baby near a a gypsy. And Blanche goes, never mind. I actually want her to come in. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm going to be the first one to see her. And her mom's like, please don't, my baby girl. She's like, I can do whatever I want. I'm like, you spoiled little bitch. She, I wrote that down. I was like, Lady Ingram talks to Blanche as if she were a toy poodle. She calls her my queenly Blanche, my angel girl. And Oof. I'm like, this is literally how I talk to my cat. <laughs> it's so, it's so upsetting. And then she comes back in and this is another thing that like, maybe it's unnecessary, but it filled me with a bunch of joy. She comes back in the room after seeing the gypsy and is like, um, it was like, fine. Like nothing, no big deal happened. And Jane is like, she seemed very upset. She picks up a book and Jane watches her while she doesn't turn the page for 30 minutes. Yes. I loved that note too. She's just sitting there like pretending to read, like being angry. (laughs) And Jane's like, um, I think maybe you aren't fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not very good at hiding it. So Mr. Mason arrives, uh, Richard Dick Mason, uh, (laughs) Richard Richard Dick Mason, Richard Dick Mason shows up. I love how instantly, uh, Jane uses that to burst Rochester's bubble. Cause she's like, you big mean jerk. How dare you like try to draw me out in this fashion. And I love when he's all like, he's like, can you forgive me, Jane? And she's like, I don't know yet. I have to think if I said anything that I should regret. So like, like me, um, but then, yeah, he's there. There's the whole thing where he like turns white and he's like afraid and he's like if everyone came and spat at me what would you do and she's like i would stay with you and all that nice stuff blah 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 so (laughs) he shows mason to his room and everything seems chill until jane awakes in the middle of the night because she's left her window shade open the moonlight wakes her up and she hears this blood curdling scream and a kerfuffle happening in the room above hers which when i read that i was like wait a second bertha's room is directly above jane's room i'm like that adds another level to it oh no i also one of the things that i noted down which is something that maybe i haven't picked up on but certainly I know in those scenes where we're hearing Rochester say, if everyone spat in my face, would you also spit in my face and kick me while I'm down? Um, and she's like, um, no, absolutely not. I would kick everybody else out because I'm in love with you, which we do hear <laughs> Jane say in her head. We've yes. said it we've said it for her a lot, but we do hear Jane admit her love for Rochester and sort of try and talk herself out of it several times in mm-hmm. this section which we didn't talk about but is a thing it's when she's like studying him when she thinks he's not looking i had not intended to love him there's a bunch of stuff in between and then she says he made me love him without looking at me and it's so the fact that we hear in her inner monologue talking that she's in love with him it's something like you've said before like there's a lot of versions where we don't get the inner monologue and therefore the movie does not accurately portray her feeling in love with him yeah the way that she is and the ones that do kind of don't handle it very well in my opinion like it's a little clunky when in like the 70s version or whatever we get those long monologues when he's saying that she sees that he looks so aghast and she wants to do anything she can to make him feel better and to get whatever she doesn't understand what's going on but whatever it is she wants to comfort him and help him and she says is there anything i can do to help and he responds with no, I, there's nothing you can do. And he, she then responds with another line that I haven't, I at least haven't picked up on in any of the adaptions that we've watched. And I'll be looking for it now mm-hmm. is the line of, well, if there is anything I can do, promise that you'll come to me first. And he yeah. does, which makes it make so much more sense mm-hmm. when there's something to be done that he goes and wakes up Jane, because mm-hmm. I have often wondered what about this emergency made you need a governess? Yeah, right. To potentially expose her to your big scary secret. Where he's he's thinking, I need somebody and I need somebody trustworthy and I need somebody who's offered to help. 
and Jane has offered to help. Mm-hmm. And, and she does so without questioning him, which I don't want to unpack that, but <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a critical setup to me of like him coming down and being like, everybody go. And Jane knowing to get dressed because mm-hmm. she knows that she's going to need to help because she just offered to help. And he promised to have her come help. And I think that that's also, we talk so often about that equality between Jane and Rochester and the fact mm-hmm. that even though they're constantly being reminded by society that they aren't equals and they shouldn't treat each other like equals, in their heads, they're equals with each other. And particularly yeah. in these tense moments when there's a fire or somebody gets attacked in the middle of the night or something like that, mm-hmm. they lean on each other and she's dressed and ready to go. Yeah. I also think this is the third time that we've seen Rochester be in need and Jane be the one helping. And yes. this constant flipping on the head of the damsel in distress. Rochester, what a little damsel you are. Such um, a damsel. She's <laughs> always helping him out, which is just lovely. Mm-hmm. I agree. There's a couple of moments in these two chapters at the end where they have, we've talked about the importance of the female gaze and what handholding means and the significance of that. So when Mason first arrives, he, you know, leans on Jane and he has that line where he's like, I wish it was just you and me on an island alone together. There's physical contact there between them. When he goes to collect her to get help, he stops before unlocking the door asking, you know, are you afraid of blood? Will you faint? And she's like, I don't know. I've never been tested that way before, but I think I'm going to be fine. And he's like, take my hand just in case. And they hold hands as he like leads her into this scary place. And I, I love those little moments of, because I, I talked about this. I can't remember which version it was. Oh, I think it was when we were talking about the first section of the book and Helen is dying and there's the description of her, like, you know, them hugging and kissing one another and how I think Jane is deprived of physical affection as well Mm -hmm. as, you know, verbal and emotional affection. And I think those are very powerful moments to be touched in a kind way by someone Mm -hmm. you care about. So I, those, whenever that happens in the book, it stands out to me and I, I highlight it in yellow. Yeah. I think another line that we've never picked up on the book in the book or in the movie in any of the adaptions at all is Jane's internal response to this. And there's no way you could do this in a natural way in an adaption. And please don't try the moment, her response in her head to him being like, do you faint at the sight of blood? My response has always been, um, what? Like ask (laughs) follow-up questions. And her response is she felt a little thrilled. (laughs) Jane, She's kinky. (laughs) She just wants adventure in the great wide somewhere, Lillian. She wants it more than she can stand. (laughs) air. No. (laughs) So I was disappointed that it is in the book that he commands the two of them not to speak for several hours and they obey him. They're so weird. And she doesn't, I kept it. I look honest to God. One of the things that I was super excited about reading the book, like when we watch all these adaptions, some of, some of the time knowing that we're going to read this book, I'll be like, Oh, like, gotta know what's going on in her head when he says that nothing. Yeah. She doesn't question it at all. He tells them not to talk to each other. He turns to Mason and says, Swear to God, if you say one word to her, I will hurt you, sir. (laughs) And then leaves. And they both just kind of go, and that was normal. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that is the first, like, really subservient moment I've seen from Jane, is her 
like blind obedience to him at that time. And the it's, whole way she helps, like at, when, even when he comes back and he's constantly just like, go get this, go do that. It's like, mm-hmm. it's demonstrating that he trusts her to do that. Yeah. But it's also demonstrating that she will just do whatever he says without question. And I don't like it. Yeah. I'm not crazy about that either. And it could be read into, you know, at this point, she's just so infatuated with him and maybe caught up in the excitement of the moment. So that it doesn't feel like there's time to ask questions, but I feel like what we've seen of Jane so much previously is her communication and the way that she questions things that he says. So here, maybe now, because this is not just like a philosophical conversation by the fire or out by the woods, but it's like a scary thing that's happening in the middle of the night, there's blood, someone is actually in danger. Maybe, that ease of conversation and questioning is kind of pushed aside for a kind of like immediate fear and like urgency to be like, okay, whatever you need, like if this will get this person to safety, then that's what I'll do. But still dabbing away blood for several hours in a scary room, I would definitely be like, like what happened? Tell me what happened. Like I would totally be talking to that guy. Or even if like, even if you go, this is a crisis, we're going to manage this crisis and we'll deal with that later. Afterwards, they just make lovey eyes at each other, which don't get me wrong. I loved it. Yeah. But I also was like, can you just ask like one or two questions about what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Seriously. And I guess she assumes that, you know, birth uh, that she assumes that Grace Poole is doing this. And I guess we do get sort of an inner monologue yeah. of her wondering, but the fact that she doesn't voice those concerns or questions. Is and annoying. she does ask, she does go, is Grace Poole going to keep working here? And he's like, don't even worry about Grace Poole. I've totally got this under control. Grace Poole is not a problem. And it's like, well, there's clearly a problem. Like, mm-hmm. ask yes. a follow-up question. Be like, dude, there's a problem. Am mm-hmm. I right? Like, and I don't want to do this two times in one episode, but the 57 handled it better. Because <laughs> the 57, she's like, no, if you're not going to tell me what's going on, I'm going to fucking leave. Because there's crazy shit happening in this house and I can't just ignore it. Oh um, and <laughs> she there was a fire and he immediately left so they didn't have a chance to talk about it and she didn't have a chance to ask him about grace pool i get it that makes sense then she got swept up with sexy emotions as we all have yes <laughs> and then <laughs> and then she there's an attack in the middle of the night and in the crisis i get it you're just managing the crisis mm-hmm. i have follow-up questions but maybe that's what it clicks on in your brain is we're going to manage this crisis and then we're going to deal with that later and then all you do is ask what are you going to do about Grace Poole? And he just goes, don't even worry about it. Put it from your mind, baby. I got this. And I'm like, no, I'm going to need more context than that. You're going to have to tell me more about what's happening. Yes. Maybe she's 19. And so that was fine with her. I don't know, dude. Before <laughs> before we wrap up with the big stuff we have to talk about, about their time in the garden afterwards, yeah. one thing I do have to say that I kind of enjoyed that I personally read into is when... Rochester returns with the surgeon and he's talking with Mason and they're like vaguely alluding to the attack and to Bertha and all this stuff. The doctor's talking about how like there's teeth marks here and she was torn. She like, tore the flesh and Rochester is like, you should have grappled with her. Like, why did you do this? Why didn't you wait for me? And he has all of these like things. He's like, you fucking idiot. You brought this on yourself. And Mason is over here lamenting. Woe is me. I didn't realize things were so bad. I'm in pain, blah, blah, blah. What I really got out of Rochester's frustration and impatience for Mason's suffering is I think he has this annoyance where he's like, dude, like 
you got attacked once. I get attacked by her constantly. I am the mm-hmm. one who carries the burden of responsibility of caring for your sister, a family member that you guys like saddled me with and then fucked off. And so he's like, you don't get to like whine mm-hmm. and cry when you come here one time unexpectedly without announcing it and then go up to her without any knowledge about how we care for her or her temperament or anything. And then you're like, oh no, she attacked me. Of course she fucking attacked you. Like maybe like if you took a moment to like wait for me yeah. and all this other stuff. So if I, only I, if only I had told you not to go up there when I wasn't there. Yeah. Oh wait, I did. I did. <laughs> so I understand his frustration and annoyance. Like mm-hmm. obviously he's yelling at a man who's like scared and hurt, but also I totally get why he's like, you fucking moron. Like so I, I get and his feelings. You there. fucking moron is I think Mason's whole character. Yeah. Because we've talked about the fact that there's two ways that people play Mason in the adaptions. Either he's a villain who's there to try to fuck with Rochester. 57 peak villain. Amazing. That's um, when he's truly <laughs> Richard Dick Mason. <laughs> but then there's other ones where he's just just a goober. He's yes. just so he's so dumb and he didn't need to be there. I think 73 is peak. I didn't even know what was happening. Like he shows up in the church and he like <laughs> looks all like, honestly, guys, I thought I was just kind of chatting with somebody. I didn't know this was going to mean couldn't get married. I was like, hey, man, like that's his whole vibe. And then Rochester, the 73s off. Richard Dick Mason, you dick. Yeah. What a, what a congratulations, Dick, on ruining my <laughs> whole life, Dick. I hope you enjoy your the rest of your life, Dick, because all I'm going to have to do, Dick, is ruin your life, Dick amazing it's so good also he's like you fucking coward step forward you bitch (laughs) (laughs) he's just hiding in the shadows (laughs) anyway Um, but we get i think we get very clearly in this and and in the conversation they have about him afterwards where she's like i don't think he would hurt you on purpose and he goes yeah but he's so fucking dumb (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes he's like no he'll just open his mouth and ruin everything that's what's going to happen so yes uh rochester and jane take a stroll through the orchard and Rochester plucks a flower for her and gives it to her, which is so nice, which I've only seen done a couple of times. I was really thinking of the, oh, why can't I think of his name? The dude who screams a lot at the end. Um, oh, I um, want to say Saoirse Ronan, but that's a lady. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's got a- Syrian Hines. Syrian Hines. Yes, not Saoirse Ronan. Syrian Hines. Um, I kept thinking of his version- <laughs> Yeah, it's great. We're, we're going to do it. So he offers her the flower. And what I, I thought this scene was equally romantic and sweet, but also like really obvious. And obviously he's just gone through this traumatic evening. He doesn't really have the wits about him to be cool and subtle, but he sits them down on that bench and he's like, he does essentially the thing. He's like, so I was wondering, no, I wasn't wondering. A friend of mine was wondering, um, this hypothetical, not me in any way. And he tells this whole story and he's asking Jane, he's like, would you, would it be okay to like, you know, pursue happiness Mm -hmm. given all these like horrible things? And then he like literally at the end throws the illusion aside. And it's that part that we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. which I have to grab the passage because he's like, he's like, no more, no more proverbs or stories or whatever. Um, here he says, I have myself, I tell it you without parable, been a worldly dissipated, restless man. And I believe I have found the instrument for my cure in, and there's that like suspended breath. He paused. She doesn't respond. Like I picture him (laughs) staring at her to be like, Jane, (laughs) and she's just like, "Mm," and he's like, 
God damn it. Because then his like complete uh, demeanor changes. At last, I looked up at the tardy speaker. He was looking eagerly at me. That's the whole thing. And then, little friend, said he, in quite a changed tone. Well, his face changed too, losing all of its softness and gravity and becoming harsh and sarcastic. You have noticed my tender penchants for Miss Ingram. Don't you think if I married her, she would regenerate me with a vengeance? Like, he's like, oh my God, really? Like, you're not picking up on this? Fine, we'll keep playing this game. And so, like, that part was so interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I one of the things that I noted down, because I, I also agree, like, right up until that moment, that whole line about the hypothetical and and trying to suss out what would Jane think of this? Like, how do I ask her without asking her? Because part of what he's asking her is, do you think this is the right thing? And also if I like, who's, who's morally responsible for these things? I think we see that in the 97 with Siri and Hines, we've Mm -hmm. talked about that conversation that they have Mm -hmm. and the fact that he's asking her without asking her. I think the other version of it is the 1971 Mm -hmm. when he gives that whole speech. There's a whole paragraph that he gives exactly that speech where he says that, that, for example, the error, not crime. So he wants to be clear that it's a mistake, not something Mm -hmm. criminal. Or I I take from that, not necessarily just like illegal, but like morally wrong. Like they made a mistake Mm -hmm. and they ended up with consequences from that mistake versus somebody who did something malicious. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the distinction that he's going for in the seventies version, 7D version, not the 73 one with jo- George C. Scott, George did it C. the Scott. wrong way around. <laughs> Sir Ronan, George um, C. Scott. <laughs> um, um, he, he says that whole speech and, but the difference is I get it, but I'm over it with Rochester hiding his feelings mm-hmm. because when he starts to talk about Blanche, I'm like, you could have done that right now. And in the seventies version, she doesn't have to go back to Mrs. Reed. That's the next thing that we're going to see happen is she's going to go mm-hmm. back because Mrs. Reed calls her home and back to Gateshead, not home. Uh, Cause so feel is home, babe. And she, he immediately goes, Oh my God, no, I'm not going to marry Blanche, but I would love to marry you if you were down. Like mm-hmm. if you would want to kiss me forever, I would want to kiss you forever, mm-hmm. which I assume is in wedding vows, but I'll find out when I go to your wedding. <laughs> I personally, now reading that scene, I get it. Like, but I now really, really like, and I've always liked this when adaptations make it so that he does the whole kind of like, it's like, Hey, like, what do you think about, you know, the future of me and my happiness in a certain special lady? And she, I like it when they have Jane be the one who's like, who Blanche? And he's like, really? <laughs> you still think that's the case? Like I, that's mm-hmm. the direction I want it to go. Yeah. And I like when they make that change instead of him yeah. then being like, okay, you're not getting it. I guess I'll play along with the Blanche lie. But yeah, it's, it's just, he's such a deeply insecure man. And yeah. <laughs> he starts with the, I'm just going to bring Blanche here and then like make you really jealous. And then he talks to her on the stairs and is like, are you feeling something? And she's like, Nope, not feeling anything. You're totally my boss. And you couldn't marry me if you wanted to. <laughs> and then later he's like, I'm not Mr. Rochester. Do you feel anything now? Yeah. Like, <laughs> she's like, 
no, still my boss. Still like nothing <laughs> can come from this. And then he's like, okay, so somebody was bleeding upstairs for a while and you were hanging out with them. But I really feel like if somebody made a mistake, say, do you think I should get to kiss somebody else? Even though reasons, I mean, mm-hmm. no, nothing. Okay, I'm going to marry somebody else. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm going to marry somebody else. How do you feel about that one, Jane? <laughs> And it's not, we know this from the other versions. It's not until he finally threatens her to be like, okay, now I'm sending you away to Ireland to to be the nanny to 12 weird Irish kids. How do you feel about that, Jane? And she's like, I hate it. I fucking hate it. That's how I feel. It's like, okay, finally, Jesus. Why does it take us this long to admit our feelings? Maybe, Maybe Bertha wasn't crazy. Maybe somebody kept doing crazy things to her to try to get her to say something. he's like I just want to know where you want to go out to eat for dinner she's like I don't care you pick (laughs) but no but he would never say that yeah he would he would dress up like their hamburglar he's like how do you feel about buns Bertha you want some burgers I'm not Rochester I'm the hamburglar it's okay you can tell me oh my god (laughs) that's what our halloween costume should be i'll be bertha and you be the hamburglar but rochester rochester dressed up as the hamburglar fabulous oh great sam can be jane Um, oh boy so yeah i feel like that's all the main talking points that i had is there any sort of like wrap-up reflection on this uh this section that you really want to voice and share before we sort of wrap this this episode up? The only thing is I'm I'm genuinely we talked a little bit at the beginning about the idea of like what do we think like do you think this might be your favorite section? I think the next one might be my favorite section. I spent so much of this section being like, kiss, kiss kiss <laughs> like the way I'm like just tell her you love her and I'm so excited to see what happens when they have that moment when they actually confess their love to each other I think um when it comes to the line of how much do you like a slow burn or not in romances I think you and I are on slightly different sides of that line and I'm over it with them not telling each other they love each other oh my gosh I was just gonna say that is I think I love the tension in the buildup and I personally love looking for little moments where his facade crumbles and like he expresses his interest in her and when that slips through so that's really exciting for me to see and to follow that journey for him uh but yes I am also excited to see them actually come together although I'm worried because like I think this first big chunk is you know her going off to back to Gateshead and I'm like I really hope that doesn't take too long I don't want to spend a lot of time with dying Aunt Reed and her freaking death bonnet and because I know from other versions there's a lot more about like the sisters and and all that other stuff that she has to deal with with her like cousins um so yeah yeah that'll be a boring chunk, but then romance. So, yeah. Well, and so just in case anybody is reading along with us, the next chunk of the book is, uh, we're going to be releasing that three weeks from when you're listening to this, or if you're listening to this later, it might be out, go check our website. Um, (laughs) we do have a whole page on our website called read along that has all the different chunks there and what sections or readings, you can see exactly what chapters it is because I'm known to say the wrong ones. Although I'm 99% these are sure these are right. (laughs) The next chapters we're reading are chapters 21 through 26. Um, we're going to be reading Jane going back to Gateshead to a dying Mrs. Reed. And then 
all the way through to their wedding and what happens immediately after the wedding, although not the chapter with sort of the fallout of that. So that's, that's the next chunk of the book, but our next episode that we'll be releasing next week, which is funny to say in June when we're talking about the end of July. And I know (laughs) time is more fun for us now than it is for you um, (laughs) is the Broadway musical. So we are going to be consuming the Broadway musical. Unfortunately, Broadway didn't just give us a full recording and or time travel tickets to go watch it in the past when it was on Broadway. So the way that we're going to consume this is we're going to be listening to the original soundtrack. So that's going to be sort of the main piece of what we use to talk about it. We're going to be talking about those songs and based off of that original soundtrack, we are also going to be watching a couple of clips. There's some promotional clips and things like that, that we can find, uh, as well as I found a full copy of the script. So (laughs) we might, I don't think I'm going to sit down and read the script, but I anticipate reading around some of the songs to get that additional context of how did they set this up. And I want to do a huge thank you to one of our but at this point, she's a collaborator on the show, um, <laughs> which is Kayla Nash, who suggested this to us. She is on Facebook in the Jane Eyre Files group there and she and files like PH files like they like it. Um, and her Instagram handle is Thundersnow1996, which continues to be a fantastic name. <laughs> I'm very excited to dive into this and talk about it in detail. I, like I mentioned when we did the um, two, 2013 musical, um, mm-hmm. I started listening to the Broadway soundtrack by mistake. So I have now fully listened to the Broadway soundtrack. I have many of the songs frequently stuck in my head late at night and I'm lying there and I'm like, damn the passion, damn the lies. <laughs> and I can't go to sleep. So <laughs> I could not wait to talk about this and how successfully I think this Broadway uh, production really Spoilers, puts emotion. I'm just saying it's I good. I don't know. I don't know any. I have been keeping myself clean and pure away from the Broadway musical so that I can have hot, fresh takes for our listeners. And oh now I'm gosh. tainted by your opinion that it's good. I have been uh, diving into James Barber, the um, <laughs> and his complete collection of music. The guy who voices Rochester and sings for him. So uh, I am the opposite of that. But that's okay. what makes us good such a a nice cute little couple yeah. of peas in a pod in so a podcast. I spend hours and hours <laughs> Googling random upsetting topics and you obsess over hot Broadway actors. Damn. Um, well, Such is on, life. on that note, if people want to um, get your takes on hot Broadway actor via email, mm-hmm. um, they can email us at airbuds at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Or if they want to find us on social. Yeah. They can do that at mm-hmm. Airbuds on all of those. And if you have an adaption in your head that you're like, I really want you guys to watch this or read this or listen to this, we're going to start doing some of the radio adaptions soon. I'm pretty excited about that. Any way that Jane Eyre has been adapted and you're like, I really want the crack team at Airbuds to give <laughs> us their hot takes. You can see all of the adaptions that we've watched as well as submit any of your adaptions. You can send in adaptions on mm-hmm. anywhere, yeah. but if you want to make sure that we haven't already watched it, you can send that in on our website. We have an adaption suggestion page where you can see all of the ones that we've already watched. Mm-hmm. And there's a little form that you can fill out that makes it nice and easy. 
Yay. Yeah, seriously, send us your fan fictions. I will read them and then share the the best of the best with Lillian. Although there are no favorites. All fan fiction is perfect just the way it is. I want all, especially the crossover fix. Um, what universe are you bringing Rochester and Jane into? I need to know. <laughs> but if you love our show and want to help other people find it, uh, right now the best thing you can do is to leave a five-star review on your app, uh, your podcast app of choice. Uh, share it with friends and family the more people listening the more engagement the more we know that you guys like what we do so it, it it's the coffee in my cup that gets me up in the morning so and while do. we while we appreciate any feedback from anywhere we appreciate any level of feedback those reviews really do matter and it really does matter if you click the five stars first of all thank you so much i'm so glad you think we're five stars but if you click a star rating that's fantastic we always appreciate that it does give us quite a bit of a boost if you write a couple of sentences and add an actual review so we really genuinely super appreciate your guys's time when you do that stuff yeah but until then i think that's all we have for you guys today so thank you for joining us uh if you've listened to the long version of this wow thank you uh and short version still great love you guys we'll see you next week happy jane ear reading and watching bye Mm -hmm.